Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The fire at Notre Dame has produced an outpouring of emotion. Its 800-year-old Gothic flying buttresses still stand. Industry leaders have pledged hundreds of millions of euros to fulfill President Macron's promise to rebuild. It's another dramatic turn for a building that needed a novel by Victor Hugo to save it in the past. We're going to tease out why this building's powerful symbolism speaks to so many people. With me is Valerie L. Garver, Chair and Associate Professor of History at Northern Illinois University. Nice to meet you. Yeah, thanks for having me. And on the line with us is Sarah Shortall. She is Assistant Professor of History at Notre Dame University. Her forthcoming book is Soldiers of God in a Secular World, the Politics of Catholic Theology in 20th Century France. Thanks for joining us, Sarah. Hi, thanks for having me. Um, Valerie, I wanted to start out with... um, kind of the the origins of the building itself 800 years ago um it wasn't um it was something that was built by people coming in from germany gothic architecture was something that was uh wasn't exactly the epitome of a french culture Right. The the Bishop of Paris in 1163 decided he wanted to have a new church built on the site. There were two existing churches there, and they had even been built upon an altar to Jupiter from the Roman period. And he, what he wanted to do was sort of unite these two churches in this spot, the Ile de Cité, um, and build one cathedral there. And so that was his goal, but it took a long time, almost 200 years, and um, it was built in some fits and starts. And in many respects, I think many people associate Gothic architecture with France because some of the best models of French architecture, including Notre Dame, are in France. And a lot of times the way it's taught, especially I think in the Anglophone world, is it's the that type of architecture is taught using French cathedrals as models. And often, um, I do this too, um, we often use Notre Dame because it has all of the classic pieces of Gothic architecture from the rose windows to the flying buttresses to the stone vaulting. And But uh, later it became a source of discontent for French people because it, it symbolized something uh, it symbolized a different era that was not uh, in favor. It was it was it fell out of favor the, the structure. Yes, and even before it fell out of favor, there were French people who disapproved of it. So the Huguenots, the French Protestants, um, in fact, um, attacked um, portions of it. Um, and then later, of course, with the French Revolution, it was seen as a symbol of um, all that was bad and terrible. And as you mentioned yourself, it would take Victor Hugo's novel to kind of help redeem it and cause. Um, People in 19th century Paris to decide that it was worth um, renovating it and, and carrying out major restoration work and preservation work on the structure. Let's talk a little more about what it means um, for contemporary uh, people with Sarah Shortall from Notre Dame University. Um, I guess, you know, it, it's almost um, almost no, but do, do people really go to church there, Sarah? I mean, is the, there seems to be such a small church going public uh, in France. Uh, does, how does it factor as a, as a cathedral these days? Does it, uh, how does it function there? Uh, well, it still is a functioning cathedral. Uh, it's actually the seat of the Archdiocese of Paris, so it is a very important uh, religious center. And it is true that uh, France is a fairly secular, indeed a very secular country nowadays, Um, but it is still the case that um, 60% of French people identify as Catholic. And so I think the building does have this resonance with French people um, as part of their cultural and historical identity, even if they're not practicing Catholics. But it still very much does function as a, a site of worship still. 
But it seems like the symbolism seems to go so far beyond um, straight religious uh, symbolism. Yeah, that's that's absolutely right. And I think we've seen that in the outpouring of uh, grief and horror after after the these events. And what's really struck me is the way that that all French people have uh, really grieved this loss, including people who would traditionally be uh, fairly hostile to religion and to the church. Um, the left wing publication Liberation, for instance, had this uh, headline Notre Drame, Our Tragedy. And so even those parts of the French public that would traditionally be anti-clerical have been horrified by these events. And I think it's because the cathedral sort of transcends this particular religious meaning and it is associated more broadly with French national identity, with the long history of France. It's, of course, 800 plus years old. And it's seen all of the major events of French history. Um, it's also the geographical center of Paris. It's the marker from which distances in France are measured. So it, it means much more, I think, to the French people than than just being a religious symbol. Well, do the when you go to rebuild it and you have all these titans of industry rebuilding it, they are not doing it. Uh, they're doing it uh, not out of a matter of faith. They are doing it out of a matter of. Um, Patriotism, history, uh, wh- 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 pro- nationalism. Uh, yes, I, th- I think that's a big part of it, um, and already a, a lot of money has has already been donated for its reconstruction. Um, so I think that is the the kind of common denominator is the sense of French identity, and we see that actually in a lot of of secular countries today that these institutions and symbols of the dominant religion function as. Uh, cultural sites as as symbols of the heritage, um, much more than as overtly religious symbols nowadays. Uh, what does that mean for um, practical matters here? Because the way I've been reading about it, it seems like the uh, Catholic Church and the government in um, in France, uh, kind of dicker about whose responsibility it is to upkeep the building. Uh, the go- building is owned by the government, but its upkeep is supposed to be f- done by the Catholic Church, and they don't, you know, the, it costs so much. Both institutions uh, have, a, have had a hard time paying for it. How does that sort out, uh, Sarah? Uh, yeah, I mean, that's very, very complicated. And it goes back to the laws on secularism, which date back to the turn of the 20th century. Um, so the the church is the property of the state, but uh, the church has the right to use it and administers it. And so there is a kind of joint control of that property. Um, so they'll have to work out between themselves how they're how they're going to pay for it. But it does sound like the government has pledged uh, money for the rebuilding effort. Um, do you have some thoughts on that, Valerie? Yeah, I think this has been a challenge in many respects across France in terms of um, preserving its medieval past. Um, it's uh, very clear in the case of uh, Notre Dame, which is a beloved place, um, but it's also true of um, less well-known places where you know cathedrals and smaller towns, especially with rich um, collections of, say, manuscripts or textiles from the Middle Ages, they sometimes struggle to get the money to preserve these items properly. Um, and it's it's always a problem because they can't always depend on the say the faithful who are attending to be numerous enough to support that kind those kinds of efforts. But there's so much rich cultural heritage 
heritage in France, there's a bit of, I think, competition about where the money should be spent. And th- this is the government's um, wrap on this, that we've got so many places to take care of. Yeah, and they've they've had to make some tough choices, um, particularly when they have not had enough funds to go around for what everyone um, needs in some cases. Um, so... It's, it's definitely a challenge. I'm talking with Valerie Garver from Northern Illinois University and Sarah Shortall of the University of Notre Dame. And we're discussing uh, what's been happening with Notre Dame and the rebuilding of Notre Dame. Sarah, uh, how, um, how, you know, it seems like in recent years, the, the right in France has kind of um, used religion and faith and Catholic faith as kind of a, the ideal um, nationalism ideal uh what how does that factor in to uh french identity like saying we are catholic we are a white country we are we we are we are not uh muslim is that a is that something that is uh kind of involved in talking about uh, the symbolism of of this building um, definitely. I mean, you've already seen this, you know, immediately after the fire already on Twitter, there were people um, claiming, you know, conspiracy theories about about terrorism being behind this, of which there's, of course, no evidence. Um, so, of course, it already has been wrapped up in this in this Islamophobic discourse. Um, the relationship of the right to religion in France is, is again, fairly complicated because Actually, sizable portions of the extreme right are uh, deeply secularist and not necessarily Catholic. And so um, the, the relationship to Islam is sort of complicated by that factor. It's usually actually uh, invoked in the name of the secularist uh, discourse of the republic rather than in the name of defending Catholicism when people criticize the role of Islam, where they want to uh, ban certain conspicuous religious signs like headscarves and burqas, it's usually in the name of secularism rather than in the name of Catholicism. Um, could you go back and talk to us a little bit about secularism and how this um, philosophy evolved 100 years ago? It seems to play, play such an outsized role these days. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's very specific to France. Um, so the term in French is laïcité. And it's, it's so specific that, that scholars use that term in French rather than trying to translate it. And it's uh, wrapped up with the whole identity of the French Republic from its very founding in the French Revolution, uh, when church property was nationalized, when monastic bow, uh, vows were banned, um, churches were, of course, desecrated. But it, it really reached its apex at the turn of the 20th century, um, when the government put in place a series of laws designed to secularize the state. So they secularized the education system. Uh, they evicted the religious orders from France. So they sent tens of thousands of religious into exile. And then in 1905, they officially separated church and state. So that's still the, the law of the land. And then we've seen in more recent years how this discourse has reemerged around uh, the status of Islam and of religious minorities in France. So it's still very, very closely tied up with Republican identity. Um, Do you have some thoughts on this, Valerie? I do. Um, Many medievalists have uh, looked on with dismay as, um, you know, nationalists, uh, whether right wing or white nationalists, have co-opted and cherry-picked items from the Middle Ages and ideas from the Middle Ages and 
purported to people that this is what the Middle Ages represents and that it's a period of, you know, kind of maybe white, um, kind of a white paradise in Europe. And of course, as medievalists, we reject this and we say this is taking too simplistic a view of um, the medieval past and that they're often very much just, you know, deciding in advance what they want the Middle Ages to be rather than looking at the evidence of the past and looking at the heritage from the Middle Ages and understanding it on its own terms. I'm talking with Valerie Garver and Shara Sortal, and we're talking about Notre Dame and the fire at Notre Dame and the outpouring of emotion and the outpouring of of history about this uh, structure and why people uh, see this building as such a powerful symbol of France. Um, what is it? What is it about history here? I, I guess you know um, a lot of people look at this structure and just see French history. It's a mirror of French history. Uh, it's, it seems like they want to see the good of it mostly. But um, is there? Can a building kind of um, do that for a country? Is that something that is uh, an important function? It may be. Um, I think that a lot of times you can rally around something like, say, a monument, especially from the distant past, or an individual from a distant past. And that can be something that's sort of safe to rally around um, and to build an identity around. It also, I think, can be a great source of pride. And so um, the building can represent everything that is good about French culture, the achievements, not only in architecture and in art, because there's a lot of art in the building itself, but also in music. Um, This is a key place for the development of polyphony, um, a more complex form of music in the Middle Ages. It's near the place where the University of Paris was founded, so one can associate it also with great intellectual achievements in the French past. And I think this, in a sense, can give um, individuals a way of uh, feeling pride in, say, a French identity. Um, And it may be far in the past, but it's something that they can say, one can kind of see the kernels of what is to come and why our culture um, remained a great culture, um, particularly in terms of its contributions in those areas. Are there other buildings you'd put in the same league of kind of capsulizing uh, identity like that and history? Mm. Istanbul's got a bunch of them. Yeah, I mean, the Hagia Sophia might be one, but it's been definitely been the source of uh, some controversy. Um, I mean, you can imagine like the Colosseum in Rome, certainly Mussolini's response <laughs> and ideas about how that should be treated or how the Roman past should be treated. I think there's quite a few Roman monuments um, that are critical to sort of Italian identity. Uh, and uh, certainly I think you see this in um, places like more on a maybe city level of places like Florence, where some of the structures there, um, whether, you know, bridges or churches are the kinds of um, – Structures that just call to mind almost instantly for people a certain place and a certain era and a certain pride in the culture of that time and place. Valerie Garver is chair and associate professor of history at Northern Illinois University. Sarah Shortall is assistant professor of history at the University of Notre Dame. Her forthcoming book is Soldiers of God in a Secular World, The Politics of Catholic Theology in 20th Century France. Thank you both for joining us and talking about why Notre Dame is such a powerful symbol in France. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Coming up after the break, we'll talk about the controversy around Ilhan Omar. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ.
This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. President Trump says he has no regrets about sharing an incendiary 9-11 video of Representative Ilhan Omar. The president calls her extremely unpatriotic and extremely disrespectful to our country. The president made the comments while campaigning in Ilhan Omar's home state of Minnesota. We're going to talk about the controversy surrounding Ilhan Omar with Sylvia Chan Malik. She's associate professor of American and women's uh, American and women's gender studies, and she's uh, at Rutgers University and is author of "Being Muslim: A Cultural History of Women of Color in American Islam." And she's here to speak at the University of Chicago tonight. Nice to meet you. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Um, how have, this thing is such a, a can of worms that has exploded on uh, the American scene. How are how do you look at this and take this controversy as it's coming at you? This particular moment uh, in regards to Ilhan Omar is absolutely predictable and at the same time kind of absolutely infuriating in certain ways. So it's both at once. I mean, the way that she is being treated in the press and and characterized from the highest kind of positions of power in this country is really a larger expression of how Islam and Muslims have been formed in the U.S. cultural imaginary throughout history. And so it's the culmination of the lo- a lot of the ways Islam has been imagined uh, for centuries trees now in this country. Well, um, what are you what are you driving at there? What what is she what is she all about that that really um, her identity just seems to fire up so uh, Ilhan, people like Donald Trump. Absolutely. So Ilhan Omar stands in this particular moment in 2019 as a representation of all the things that America kind of traditionally has seen as un-American. She is black. You know, she is a strong, unapologetic Muslim woman who wears the headscarf. She is a refugee and an immigrant, right? And she's a Muslim, right, who's a proud Muslim, who is no longer going to take a back back seat because of all these kind of intersecting multiple uh, identities that she embodies. And so this is kind of, you know, at the very base, the the, the catalyst for the reactions to her. Donald Trump seems to see this as really uh, good for him politically. I mean, he is going to Minnesota to make remarks about her. He he th- he wants to you know rally people. Is this? Um, how do you see this as a? Is there a political strategy to this? Absolutely. Does he really care about uh, her identity, or does he really just care about the politics? He is tapping into long legacies of white nationalist struggles that we see time and time again, from Chinese exclusion to the internment of Japanese during World War II. I mean, if you just very even if you do a Google search <laughs> of those incidents, right, you can see the same type of racist dog whistles that come up again and again about. Uh, Japanese being a a fifth column during World War II. You know, they're infiltrating. They're not the right kind of person. I think he says something to that effect about Ilhan Omar. There's just a way about her is what he said, right? So you see these similar types of uh, uh, discourse language time and time again. And so the the tactic is clear. I mean, in World War II, we passed Executive Order 9066, and this led to kind of this mass mobilization that led to the internment of the Japanese. Right. And so it's, it's a tactic that works and continually resurfaces uh, in moments of crisis in this country. I'm talking with Sylvia Chan Malik. She's the author of Being Muslim, A Cultural History of Women of Color in, in American Islam. And she's speaking tonight at the University of Chicago. I wanted to ask you, you know, um, 
more about uh, the kind of worldview Ilhan Omar brings to the table. Outside just of her identity being a target, she has uh, ideas that are anti-militarism, that are um, – she has different ideas about politics in the Middle East. Obviously, she's made a lot of comments about uh, Israel. Uh, does she just represent something that is uh, politically – uh, something the Republican Party is just going to push down, that, that, and they're, they're going to use whatever thing they've got to do it. Ilhan Omar is speaking in a tradition uh, of Islam's presence in this country that dates back to the earliest days of the Republic. Right? African-American Muslims were some of the first uh, uh, Muslims who spoke publicly about their identity in this country. So she's embodying that legacy, which we know the best through people like Malcolm X and Muhammad Ali. She is speaking to new waves of Muslims to our shores who came as immigrants and refugees. She's speaking to this kind of empowered Muslim woman that we see rising in this moment, Right, so she's embodying all of these things and, and, and creating a new intersection of identity that challenges all our notions of what an American is. Right? It's fresh. It's unprecedented, her worldview. And this is why it's causing such an incredible uh, ripple effect amongst the population, both in terms of the anger against her. Right? But also of the embrace of her new fresh perspective on our political scene. Right? It's producing both. She has incredible support as well as these attacks and vitriol. And it's producing a new landscape for how we think about race, religion, gender, and what it means to be American in this country. I noticed that she raised uh, $800,000 in the first three months of the year. So people are backing her monetarily. They exactly. Saying, yes. I mean, she has raised, I think, more than Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Rashida Tlaib, uh, who are her other freshman uh, representatives in Congress who are causing the splash as well. So we see that she's expressing a point of view that is out there and that people are listening and people are tapped in. And it took this intersection of her various identities, black, Muslim, immigrant, refugee, woman, right, to, to kind of express that and articulate that in a way that people could hear. Now, um, there's been this bodega strike in uh, New York by the Yemeni bodega owners who uh, they're, they're, they don't want to put out the uh, New York Post anymore on their bodegas. They're going to boycott them. Um, what is what is that kind of uh, – how does that meld into what's going on here? I'm so glad you brought that up because that is a perfect example of how Ilhan Omar is bringing people into the political process who have previ previously stood on the sidelines or been silent. You know, Yemeni American bodega owners in New York City are not people that you usually think of as being very involved, right, in the national political scene. But there they are kind of speaking up for a perspective that they think represents them and doing something where they put their money where their mouth is, right? We're not selling the New York Post because they're inciting these attacks. They, they argue they're inciting these attacks against uh, a woman who is speaking truth to power for their community. I was talking once with a uh, professor from Europe, and he was a Muslim, and he said, you know, the, the, we didn't really have any problems in Europe until, you know, we weren't the people who were uh, cleaning and uh, cleaning people's houses. But when we became middle class, that's when uh, all the problems started, that really once we uh, started to have status and a, were seen in society, that's uh, where, when the trouble starts. 
In the United States, I think there's a very different trajectory that's rooted in the way Islam and Muslims have been present uh, in U.S. politics and culture. So here, you know, with Islam being so present in African-American communities starting in the early 20th century, you see the FBI, the CIA, things like that, talking about the Nation of Islam and other African-American Muslims like Malcolm X in terms that we actually use now to talk about Muslims in response to uh, uh, invasions and in terrorism and things like that. You know, this idea that they're this fifth column, they're insurgent, they're radicals, they're angry, they're identity extremists, things like that. And so within the United States, there's a particular way where Islam and Muslims are connected to blackness as well as to foreignness, right? And so this, again, creates this perfect storm in which Ilhan Omar stands in the middle of all these marginalized identities and takes the brunt of all the history that is embedded in her presence. Uh what should Ilhan Omar do now? There's a, there's some people who say, and probably some in the Democratic Party who say she should be more careful with her words. She cannot um, be out there and um, carry the banner for for what she believes quite the same with so much stridency. Is that what do you? Is um, I imagine there are other people, younger people. Uh, who want her to carry the banner with with stridency? What, how do, what do you think is going on here? Right, and and I'll I'll, t- I'll talk. Of, I'll answer this in a very personal way. Um, I teach courses at Rutgers, and I have young Muslim students uh, in my classes, Muslim Americans, you know, who say they have never known a world. Um, they're 19, 20 years old, where their religion, their faith, their culture was not associated with terrorism and the war on terror, right? And they are at a moment in which they say, we no longer want to be embarrassed or walk away from our faith and, you know, kind of half speak in these half truths or, you know, express ourselves halfway about who we are. So when we, when they look at Elhan Omar or when young people who feel like that see her expressing clearly, forcefully, unapologetically, her worldview as a Muslim, an American, a public servant, they are incredibly inspired. And it's producing, like I said, these Yemeni American shopkeepers who are getting involved, young people getting involved. I feel that she needs to continue what she's doing in certain ways because people are hearing her and it's shifting the conversation. And that is really vital and important to our moment right now. I'm talking with Sylvia Chan Malik. She is the author of Being Muslim, A Cultural History of Women of Color in American Islam. And she's speaking tonight at the University of Chicago at the School of uh, Social Service, uh, the Social Service Administration, and the address, it's at uh, 60th Street. Um, what, what are you talking about tonight? You're giving a, an important address. I'm actually uh, doing a talk on the history of Muslim women in the United States and telling a specific story to Chicago about a group of African African-American Muslim women who converted to Islam in the 1920s on the South Side. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. So I'll be telling their story and trying to connect it to our present moment and thinking about what it means to be a Muslim woman in the United States. Well, tell us just a teeny bit of it. Uh, There was a group, a large group uh, of Muslim women, African-American Muslims who converted to Islam on the South Side of Chicago and across this country in the midst of intense turmoil and transition and crafted new ways of being Americans and Muslims and black women in a time where there were no such thing. And it seems like women like Ilhan Omar are still doing that and living in that tradition. Um, 
should um, I want to talk about her as an immigrant a little bit um, because she often references that she was a refugee and she's been very uh, strong about the Muslim ban and uh, how does that part of her identity uh, drive some of the antagonism towards her? I mean, we see a larger zeitgeist or mood of nativism in this country. I mean, the talks of walls and bands. I mean, these are all words for different types of people that we don't see as kind of ideal citizens in our moment or people that we want to welcome into our citizenry. So her status as an immigrant and a refugee, once again, uh, triggers people's under you know kind of notions of who should and who should not be an American at this moment um, and it's so interesting because when when people say about her you know she doesn't know what it's like to be an American or she is not you know someone who belongs here in many ways her status as an immigrant as a refugee someone who's lived through war someone who has gone through immense hardship in order to be an American and to be here and participate in the political process and to have death threats, you know, hurled at her every day because she wants to be a public servant, right, seems to me the consummate American story and one that, you know, uh, we should celebrate instead of vilify. Uh, where, where do you see, how do you see this story ending? I mean, is this a never-ending story or is this something uh, we can get a grip on? I'm an optimist, so, <laughs> you know, it, it is my hope and prayer uh, that just like in this new freshman class in the House of Representatives, people like Ilhan Omar, Rashida Tlaib, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the Native American uh, representatives, the first Native representatives of the House, this leads to new positions and subjectivities being uh, kind of drawn into the political process because of the urgency of it. And I see it as a catalyst, I hope, once again, because I'm an optimist, of a flourishing of this diversity in our political process, which I hope continues for years to come. And that would be the best outcome. Sylvia Chan Malik is an associate professor of American and Women's and Gender Studies at Rutgers University. Her book is Being Muslim, A Cultural History of Women of Color in American Islam. She is speaking tonight at 6 o'clock at the University of Chicago School of Social Service Administration, and uh, that is at 60th Street in Chicago. The presentation begins at 6 p.m. Great to have you in town today. Glad you could come in and make this, and thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Coming up after the break, we'll talk about Middle East peace through technology and innovation. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Shimon Peres was a well-known Israeli statesman who shared the Nobel Peace Prize for the Oslo Accords. He died in 2016, but his work lives on in the Peres Center for Peace and Innovation. It focuses on building peace between diverse communities. 
Shimon Peres's son, Chemi Peres, is the chair of the center. He's also the managing general partner and co-founder of Pitango Venture Capital. It's Israel's largest venture capital firm. It's great to meet you. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. You know, we have a little experience these days with the Obama presidential library going in, and there's usually a theme and an idea. With the Perez Center, you've got an interesting theme with innovation and peace. What did you want to do there? So basically, when my father uh, founded uh, the center in 1996, after the Oslo Accords, he realized that peace cannot be signed by leaders only. It has to be adopted by the people. So the first idea of the center when it was founded is it was to privatize the peace process. And so we do a lot of projects to bring people to people. Let me give you a couple of examples. In the healthcare space, for example, we have a program which is called Saving Children, where we bring young Palestinian children from the West Bank and from Gaza who needs uh, life-saving treatments. And we bring them to Israeli hospitals. We fundraising for their treatment. They come with their family for a period that might be between a week or two weeks or sometimes more for rehabilitation. And then after the treatment and after the rehabilitation process is ended, they go back to their villages. So far, the center has saved the lives of 12,588 children. That's a great thing. Another thing that we do, thank you, another thing that we do is we started also to train physicians, training doctors in Israeli hospitals. So a Palestinian physician would come to Israel to work in an Israeli hospital and would train for a period that may last up to five years. After those five years, that person, uh, men or women, they go back to their villages. And so they help uplift the Palestinian healthcare infrastructure. So far, the center has trained 250 medical doctors. And of course, there are some more now going through this training. I imagine the idea there originally was that these kind of projects would blossom, that there would be other people taking up the mantle of doing this. Did that not happen? I mean, the peace process is such a um, failure these days, and we have such divisions. Uh, Do you look like an anomaly these days? Yeah, the center is doing a, a fantastic job, and it receives a lot of cooperation both from the Israeli government as well from uh, the Palestinian authorities. Uh, We thought that doing the privatization process is not enough through projects. We need to do more. And so we decided to introduce innovation as a platform to shape a new tomorrow for the people, not only inside Israel, but also between Israel and its neighbors. As my father spoke about the power of innovation, he said that the computer is becoming... Uh, stronger than the sword. And the computer can be used not only to kill, but also to cure. And the idea is really to shape a new tomorrow for the people in the region. So what we do now, we change the name to the Paris Center for Peace and Innovation. And through innovation, we're seeking to shape a new tomorrow that will allow us to live together. When you think about it, Israel was created through innovation. We innovated in order to settle down. We innovated in order to build our defense industry. We innovated in order to grow our economy. And now we are at the fourth stage of innovation, which is to bring peace. I'm talking with Shemi Perez. He is chair of the Perez Center for Peace and Innovation. It focuses on building peace between diverse communities. 
I wanted to ask about uh, where Building Peace is going. Your father's Labor Party, which he did so much for in the course of his career, at its worst ever showing in the recent elections, it was between 4 and 5% of the population voted for labor. Um, what happened? I mean, the whole country, it's moved to the right. Yeah, it looks like a lot of people are shifting to the right. And as a matter of fact, politically, there is a growing center. People do not want to be defined as left or right. And uh, if you ask me, the question is not left or right. The question is forward or backwards. Are we moving forward into a better future or are we going backwards to terrible days? And I think that still, even though it has changed, the majority of the people in Israel, as well as the majority of the people, I believe, in the Palestinian Authority, are seeking peace because all of us at the end of the day want to live uh, in a prosperous way. We want our children to grow safely. We want them to be happy. And I believe that what we are lacking still is trust. And through the attempts to create peace between the nations, we lost trust uh, because of uh, fanatics on both sides. But I remain optimistic, and I believe that at the end of the day, uh, Jews and Arabs uh, will not only be uh, living together, they will not be doomed to live together. They will prosperly live together and create a new tomorrow. But that requires time and trust. How do you see that happening? Because right now it seems like things are happening that are very unilateral in nature. And Israel had its nation-state law that came out recently, and the prime minister says things like uh, Israel is not a state of all its citizens. How do you see trust being built up if there's all this unilateral power that's coming down? I think uh, there is necessity at the end of the day that will drive us together because the world is moving forward very, very fast. I believe that the vision of those who are moving forward into a new age of science and technology and entrepreneurship and innovation are finding uh, themselves ahead of those who are left behind or not part of the game. The biggest challenge, in my view, is to bring all those people that are left behind forward, not only within Israel or within the region, but I think it's a global question. Therefore, the necessity of moving forward and have an inclusion of all the people to share the future, that will drive the peace process. It will come from the young generation that is connected today. It will come with the notion that data and information is the source of power and not the land. And I believe that when new leadership will arise in the region, coming up from the grassroots, from the young generation, I believe that we will start to see better days in our region. How does that fit in with kind of what we're seeing happen and unfold right now. We see the Netanyahu government in the last days of the election campaign pledged to annex West Bank settlements. This was something that was supposed to be negotiated during the Oslo years. What happened? How do you get to that place you're talking about when this kind of thing is going down? So the average notion uh, among the people in Israel is that there is no trust today between us and uh, the Palestinians. People say, you know, we left the Gaza Strip and what we get is terrorism. Had we uh, gave back the Golan Heights, we would get uh, ISIS on our borders. And I think that peace requires a lot of courage, and it is also controversial in many ways, because when you go to war, you're unified, you have an enemy, the mission is very uh, clear to everyone, but when you go for a peace process, it's controversial. 
And when the Oslo Accord uh, signed, it was uh, leading to, on one hand, terrorist attacks, and on the other hand, the murder of a prime minister. And I think that we have to shape a new tomorrow. We have to start with building trust between Jews and Arabs, between Israelis and Palestinians. Sharing a tomorrow, is that a two-state solution? Because a lot of people think the two-state solution is over. People should push for a one-state solution. We have some kind of one-state solution happening anyway. Is that the way you end up sharing? Um, It's a complicated question that I will not be able to answer in uh, just a few minutes because uh, you have to define what is exactly two states, what is the other state looks like, and what its borders are. Is it going to have an army or it's not going to have an army? Um, I think it's very complicated now for people to envision how these two states are existing. Um, Basically, it's hard to imagine a bright future. It's easier to imagine the atrocities. Um, and to pitch those atrocities. But I do believe that at the end of the day, the borders and the land are less important. What is really important is, is the Middle East capable in moving forward with the world into a new tomorrow that is so much different than the old one? Uh, My father spoke about the old world as a world where greatness came from the land, from the natural resources, This is why people fought each other over the land and natural resources to become great. And it's a history that fools of winners and losers and bloodshed. And if you talk about tomorrow, you can talk about countries that are building their power out of their brain. They are building their power out of the possibilities of science and technologies. You can have better water. You can have clear energy without conquering land or confiscating land. So if we move forward into this new age of science and technology, I believe we'll have a better future to share, and then we can resolve the problems of the past. I'm talking with Hemi Perez. He's the chair of the Perez Center for Peace and Innovation, and he's also the co-founder of the largest venture capital firm in Israel. I wanted to ask a question about one of your father, Shimon Perez's final projects, his autobiography, uh, No Room for Small Dreams, Courage, Imagination, and the Making of Modern Israel. Uh, It came out in 2017. What was the message that he wanted to convey there? The book, by the way, he wrote uh, the first time uh, about chapters in his life that have been either great dreams that he fulfilled and realized or uh, great decisions that he had to take as a leader. Uh, So he talks about the foundation of the state of Israel. He's talking about the creation of the nuclear facility in Dimona. He's talking about initiating the Israeli aerospace industries. He's talking about the economy, how we transformed our socialist economy into a modern open economy. And last but not least, he talks about peace. And the message of my father is that we have to be optimists not because uh, we are naive people, but because optimism can shape the reality for tomorrow. You have to believe, and only if you believe in things and you allow yourself to dream and to change the reality and to shape the future, only then you can really achieve great things. And he said that if you want to be a great human being, you have to serve a great cause, but you also have to allow yourself to dream and to imagine and to pursue your dreams even though you have sometimes opposition and sometimes people think that what you do is crazy. Still, if you believe this is the right thing to do, you have to do it. 
at the end of the book, he wrote about his life and he wrote a farewell note from life. And he said, I'm leaving the world with no regrets besides one. Um, and the regret that he had is saying, when I look at the reality of Israel today and compare it to the dreams that we had when we founded the nation, I know that we should have dreamt more and the dreams should have been bigger. So the message is for every young man and woman in the world, every leader, to dream, to lead, not to exercise authorities, and to believe that with optimism, with imagination, we can create a much better world. I wanted to ask a question. You're in Chicago. You're going to have a memorandum of understanding with the city of Chicago. What does that do for you? Yeah, so Mayor uh, Rami Manuel visited us in 2017, and he wanted to see Chicago as becoming the smartest city on earth. And Chicago is a very special city. And today, after we build the uh, Paris Center for Peace and Innovation, and we're active in those projects in innovation, bringing people from all walks of life, Jews and Arabs, within Israel and between Israel and the Palestinian authorities, we are now starting to uh, sign agreements uh, with other cities and with other societies and countries in order to create those kind of relationships, which we call them innovation affairs, not foreign affairs. We start initially with Chicago. This is the first agreement that we're signing. And this is basically a statement of an interest to work together to bring innovation as a platform to bring the different people that live in the city or in our case, in our country, uh, to work together to take the future in their hands. Hemi Perez is chair of the Perez Center for Peace and Innovation, started by his father, Shimon Perez. He is also the managing general partner and co-founder of Pitango Venture Capital, and it's the largest venture capital firm in Israel. Uh, tell us what Pitango means. Pitango is a semi-wild cherry that the original name was Pitanga from Brazil, but it was brought to Israel and it was very well received uh, in the backyards of little houses in old Tel Aviv. When we would go to school, we would look for the red uh, semi-wild cherries, the Pitango cherries, and we would pick them. If they are really, really red, they were juicy and very sweet. Elsewhere, they were uh, more sour. So in the business of investing in early-stage technology companies, it's the business of picking pitangos. What was your best pitango? The best one is uh, the one I will invest in tomorrow. <laughs> but one of the uh, companies I love and I'm on the board of is a company which is also active here in Chicago. It's called Via. It provides public transportation in affordable prices. And the nice thing about it is that the schedules and the routings are not preset. So actually, instead of buses, we run vans. So they can actually go to any part of the city in Chicago and pick up any person, usually living in the city. They need to commute twice a day from home to work. So instead of you chasing different stations and lines and schedules, you have the system adapt to yourself. Uh, they are operating now in, I think, about 70 uh, cities around the world. Yesterday, they started in Tel Aviv. In Chicago, is one of the three cities that they run by themselves. And it's an amazing platform for equality for people and affordability. So what's the name of the firm again? It's called Via, Ride Via. with Via. There's an app. Uh, people say it's like Uber, but in Uber, you book a car. In Via, you actually book a seat and you share the ride with others. But the system, which is based on algorithms and software, 
is routing those little buses uh, straight forward from point to point so you don't have to go around and waste time. Hemi Perez is chair once again of the Perez Center for Peace and Innovation and Pitango Venture Capital is his venture capital firm. Thanks a lot for joining us. Thank you. Don't forget you can podcast Worldview. Sign up wherever you get your podcast. You could also go to wbez.org slash worldview and sign up for the Worldview podcast there. Tomorrow we are going to go to North Africa and talk about a couple of the stories coming out of North Africa these days. In Algeria, the longtime leader Abdulaziz Bouteflika has resigned and people are demanding a full change in the military system there. We'll talk about what's happening in uh, Algeria. Also, we'll talk about more generally about the violence in the Sahel region over the past five months. 5,000 people have been killed. We'll talk about what's happening there. Hope you can join us tomorrow for Worldview. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Jenny Friedland and Ashish Valentine for production assistance, and thanks to Mike Gilmore for engineering. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.